The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. We are back in Acts after our Advent journey through Isaiah. And so this is a journey that we began back in August. Uh, looking at the early church and looking at what God was doing uh, through uh, these early disciples, uh, how he was expanding his mission uh, to, to be a blessing uh, to the world. Uh, this was really a, a fulfillment of the, the, the Abrahamic covenant way back in Genesis 12, and it finds its it seeds uh, in, in, in the way it is being blossomed out back in Genesis 3 when, when the promise of, of the seed of the woman would crush uh, the serpent's head. And so because Jesus has, has lived and he has died and he has rose again in Acts 1.8, we find him ascending. And as he ascends, he tell, tells these disciples that are gathered there, that they will receive power in his name when the Holy Spirit rushes upon them and that they will be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And that's the thesis statement for Acts. And as you look at Acts and you kind of move through it, if you take note of the, the geographical locations, you begin to see this expansion, this movement. And in this passage we look at this morning is one that when you're reading, you can quickly gloss over. Uh, we've, in, earlier in chapter 9, we find uh, Saul's conversion. And, and it's a tremendous event with, with, with radical implications for the early church. In Acts 10, you see this groundbreaking moment of, of this vision that Peter has uh, and how all things are declared clean. And so these laws, these dietary laws, have been removed. But even what is more significant about that in Acts 10 is there was this tremendous ethnic disdain for Gentiles. A tremendous ethnic disdain for Gentiles. And in this declaration that we'll see next week of the cleanness of the food, it was really opening the gates for our Jewish disciples, these apostles and others, to go out in fulfilling God's mission. And so as we look at this passage this morning, I want us to kind of sit with this for a second to understand uh, the power of the gospel. Uh, in, in this, we, we, we are reintroduced to Peter. I say reintroduced because it's been several chapters since we've seen him. And if you look at Acts, one of the things that are happening in those first nine chapters is, is an, uh, this uh, introduction in the narrative of all these different characters. You have Peter, and then you have uh, John, and they're doing these miracles, and you're introduced to Saul, who is later named Paul. We find Barnabas, who was originally named Joseph. And through this, we see the work of the gospel changing these men and changing these women for God's glory to bring about the transformation that God desires. And so in this passage, we find, in, beginning in verse 31, we're at a period of rest. 
which is, is very unique up to this point. There had been no, uh, been no rest. Each time that the gospel had been declared or, or uh, miracles had been performed, one of the things that would happen in each of those texts is that the church was met with persecution. And so we find ourselves today in, in a place where there is rest. There is uh, a peace that has come upon the church. And as that is going on, it says the church is being built up. We don't know exactly how long uh, in terms of time passes between verse 31 to verse 32. But what we see is that Peter is moving outside of Jerusalem and he's getting more into the area of Samaria. Where we find Peter is in Lydda, which is 25 miles northwest of Jerusalem. And what's even significant about this encounter is that Lydda isn't all that popular of a town. You, you go in and you do research. It, it's not necessarily the place where you would expect Peter, uh, the, this chief of apostles, to go and set up shop. But here we find him, and the, through the, 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 the leading of the Lord and, and the Spirit, he's in there in Lydda. And, and we're told about this man named Aeneas. We don't know anything about him other than his condition. That he's bedridden and paralyzed, and he's been so for eight years. We, we don't know if he's a believer. We, we don't know really why Peter has come to this particular man as opposed to others. But what we see is that Peter comes, and when he encounters this man, he looks to him. In the name of Jesus, he tells him to rise and make his bed. Now, as I was sitting with this passage this week, no doubt there were a number of miracles that were performed. The end of John tells us that if everything was written that Jesus had done, even the, the books of the world couldn't contain it. So certainly there are other individuals, but the beauty of this man, Aeneas, and the, and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that his name is captured for us here and preserved in Scripture one of the things that I was compelled and humbled by is that, that, that our stories matter. Our, our lives matter. So often we, we, we sit there and we say, well, Lord, I'm just insignificant. I'm just so ordinary. Those other people, they do tremendous things, but, but we have kind of a ho-hum attitude about ourselves. And so here Peter is in a kind of a ho-hum town, going to see an outcast, and he moves in the name of Jesus, and God's grace comes and brings healing to this man. Now, again, this, this is done in order not to bring glory to Peter. We're, we're, the, the moral of this story isn't go be like Peter. No, what happens is because he is performing this miracle in Jesus' name, this man is, is healed, and it says that many turn to the Lord. Now, that's significant because if you go in and look at, at, at a study of Scripture and look at miracles that perform, are performed, what you will readily find without fail is that those miracles are done to turn people back to the Lord. 
You see this time and time again. There, there was a similar instance in John 5 where Jesus heals the, the, the paralytic that Bethsaida, and a lot of scholars would say that this particular passage is very reminiscent of that. And that those miracles are, are, are for this particular age and uh, the apostleship because they're speaking with words of divine revelation. And there is this exchange in Scripture that whenever a miracle of this order is, is, is enacted or, or, or exercised, it, it follows with divine revelation. Now, again, we're kind of looking a little forward towards next week, but I think this is critical in this hinge passage because it's pointing forward to this really water swell of a revelation that we find Peter giving to Cornelius. Now, I want to shift back from this and look to our next miracle that we find. We are now no longer in Lydda, but we're in Joppa. Now, Joppa is another 10 and a half miles northwest of Lydda, so we're some 35 to 36 miles from Jerusalem. Joppa is on the coast, uh, and it's where modern-day Tel Aviv is. It's on the Mediterranean Sea. And so word gets out all the way to Joppa that Peter is in this small town in Lydda. And why is it important that word gets out about this healing of Aeneas? Well, we meet this lady named Tabitha, or Dorcas, which for some reason hasn't quite made it into the popular names for girls. But this... This particular name, both in Jew, um, Hebrew and in Greek, means gazelle. And the gazelle, if you've ever seen one, if you've been on a safari in Africa or watched some of our uh, Planet Earth uh, episodes, what you'll see is they're tremendously graceful and fast, and they, they just move with, with this ease. And what we find is that's the way that Tabitha or Dorcas lived her life. We're not sure how the gospel has made it all the way to Joppa at this point. But what we find is that the description of her tells us that she's full of good works and acts of charity. That's the way she's described. That's the way these folks uh, would present her to others. We don't, again, know much about this individual. We assume that she's single. And we also assume that she is in some way affluent because she lives on her own and has resources and has a house. And so there's, she's been successful in some ways. But out of her success, what we find is that in these uh, full of good works and acts of charity, that she has made tunics and other garments for the outcast and the widow. She, she was someone who saw the brokenness of the world and was, was moved in her heart to bring about shalom, to bring about restoration and reconciliation. And so out of her abundance, she was levering, leveraging her resources to be a blessing to others. And so that's why her death is so significant. It tells us that she fell ill and that she died. And in this day and age, like we find in the widow of Nan in, in the gospel of uh, or Luke chapter 7, um, in that story, we hear about the, the, these folks who were wailing or crying. And in this particular 
uh, setting, in this cultural moment, you would have these folks that would gather that were these professional wailers or m mourners. And what we find in the text that these widows who've gathered in this room, who've washed her and cleansed her, that is not what this passage is talking about. The, the Greek in, it, in its language isn't allowing that. These were people who had been touched by her ministry that were severely mourning the loss of their friend. And they were so severely mourning that they had caught wind of Peter's ministry ten and a half miles to the southeast in Lydda. And they sent out two disciples. And they said, go bring Peter. And what's amazing is that Peter goes. So these disciples are traveling a, a 20 mile or so trek to get Peter and he goes and he walks up to this lady who's lying in her, in her mourning cloth being prepared for burial. Now if you talk about resurrections in Scripture, they are not a common occurrence. They are not a common occurrence. Jesus raised three people from the dead in his ministry. He raised Lazarus. He raised Jairus' daughter. And as I mentioned, the son of the widow of Nan. Paul raised Eutychus, who after a long sermon was sitting by a window and fell out. And so Paul went out and healed him. To date, when, this, when these disciples are going to Peter, no apostle has raised anyone from the dead. So this is a tremendous act of faith. They don't know what else to do. Which is what I want us to bring us to our first point in kind of setting this, 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 this stage for this text that we're looking at. We're moving into a new year. We're in a new year, but we're marching forward into it. Some of us may be just elated at, at 2021. We, we, we greeted the birth of a new child. We started a new career. Perhaps we closed out a lucrative career. We saw a, a marriage in our family uh, to someone we loved, or maybe we got married. And it was a tremendous, tremendous year. But for every one of those stories, there's someone who lost somebody. There was a miscarriage, or the hope of a child that was not yet granted by the Lord. There was a, a career that ended. There was someone who suffered hardship or got that diagnosis from the doctor that they had been fearful of. There was a lot of anxiety. There was a lot of stress. There was a lot of brokenness and heartache and sickness and despair. We go into this year wondering what 2022 will hold. And the thing about this passage that I want us to use as a reality of going forward is that there are going to be a lot of things that we're not going to know what to do with. Here is a beloved saint 
lying on her deathbed. And these folks don't know what to do. And so in a, in a time when they don't know where else to turn, they turn to Jesus. They've heard of how Peter had healed this man, Aeneas, in the power of Jesus' name. And they say, we don't know what else to do, so we're going to go to Peter. Because if he can raise this man in, in Jesus' name, well, then we need to turn to him. And so in this year, as, as you're considering the different circumstances, whether it be something of tremendous joy or something of tremendous despair, regardless of which one it is or where it falls on the spectrum, we must remember that we need to turn to Jesus. We need to turn to Jesus in, in thankfulness and gratitude and, and, and rejoicing for what He's done. Or we need to turn to Him in, in like we sang, that He would be our rock and our refuge, our Redeemer. The, the, the guilt and the shame that, that hangs heavy upon our hearts, that we would turn to the cross to understand that He has taken those things away and we bear them no more. For the uncertainty of life, we must turn back to Jesus. Because the reality is all of us have an innate default mechanism, particularly towards those hardships. We, we have a tendency towards self-medication. We want to numb the pain. So we turn to an image on a computer screen when we think no one's watching. We, we turn to a substance in a bottle, or in a, in a, 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 whether it be a glass bottle or a plastic bottle. We, we turn to something just to kind of look for relief. Others of us are a little more indifferent towards those things. We just say we just stuff it deep down in our hearts and say we, we just don't want to have to deal with it. And if we don't deal with it, then maybe it'll just go away. And so we just keep stuffing and stuffing until it ends up erupting out in a harsh word or a strong comment, and it ends up breaking relationship. Some of us create alternative narratives. We just simply assume that we're better than the situation and that we're the victim. And that it's not our fault, but it's everyone else's fault. That we're not the problem, that they're the problem. And if all of those people, or that virus, or that boss, or that bad relationship would just go away, then it would all be fine again. Each of us has a default system. And in that default system, we must repent. Because what we're trying to do is to be our own Savior. We're trying to bring order out of the chaos of our lives. And when we sit and we rest with that chaos, we must remember that we have to turn back to Jesus. And so these disciples turned to Peter. And Peter goes. And he's brought up into this upper room and, and these widows are, 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 are making a case that he should intercede on behalf of their friend, their, their mentor. And, and, and here Peter is. He's done a lot of things. He's healed a, a paralytic man, but, but this is a, a dead 
lifeless body. And so what does Peter do? He tells us in verse 40 that he put them all outside and he knelt down and he prayed. When we don't know what to do, we need to pray. We came in this morning. Josh and I were walking around. We had internet, but it wasn't connected to anything. And all these devices and the live stream and the recordings, it's pretty important to have internet on a Sunday morning here. Uh, we learned that through the pandemic. Uh, we, we, Josh and I aren't, aren't techies per se. Um, so we, as we were walking down the hall to where those things are located, I just said in my head, Lord, we need some help. <laughs> it was as simple as that. And so after a, a turn the button off, <laughs> turn it back on, the Lord gave us internet. Now, you may, you may think, oh, that's very trivial. We're talking about a lady who has died here. You know what? I, I would have felt like a lot of small death <laughs> if, if we, I, my morning would have been much more anxious. But I give you that very minor episode because all too often in our lives, what we do when we encounter a situation is we think about God as an afterthought. Lord, I have this big decision. Here are all my, pan my plans. Here's my SWOT analysis. Lord, I've made a decision. Now will you bless it? This tends the way we function. What if we went to the Lord first? What if we acknowledged our limits? Lord, I don't know what to do. Lord, I need you to give me wisdom. I need you to give me discernment. I need you to show up in a big way. Lord, I need you to help. So often those four letters of help are, are words that we, are, are as a word we don't want to ask for. We, we've bought into the lie of, of being self-reliant. And our pride won't let us acknowledge them. And so here we find Peter. And all the things he's done, and all the things the Lord has done through him, and all the things he's seen, and the people come to faith, and the lame walk, and the blind see, and even Lazarus. Well, that was great, but that was with Jesus. And so he kneels down and he prays. And he turns to the body and he says, Tabitha, arise. And she opens her eyes. And when she, when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and he raised her. Peter prayed. Now that could be something we could simply gloss over. But Luke was very intentional in noting that act. That when Peter came up against the brokenness of the world, on full display with a woman who, who we would have said, why do bad things happen to good people? Why did she die so early? Why, why, why would the Lord take this individual who was doing so much good? Well, he, he, he didn't offer some logical reason. He just said, Lord, I don't understand and I need you to show up. And the Lord did. And so we remember this year that when we don't know where to turn, we need to turn to Jesus. 
And when we don't know what to do, we need to pray. And the third thing that I want us to look at from this passage is that we need to believe that Jesus is enough. We need to believe that Jesus is enough. A moment ago, I mentioned five resurrections in the New Testament. Three of those are performed by Jesus, one of them by Peter, one of them by Paul. But there's a sixth resurrection I didn't mention, and that's Jesus' resurrection. You see, each of those resurrections hinge on the power of God that raised Christ from the dead. And the same power of God that, that raised Christ from the dead through the power of the Holy Spirit is at our disposal. Now, I don't know why God and His providence and sovereignty has ceased to allow such sorts of miracles. I can give you the good theological answer, but in my heart I would sure love for the Lord to do something of this order. When I worked in college ministry, there was a professor who was the advisor for our ministry, and this particular man was a, uh, uh, in the science department. And he worked with and rubbed shoulders with all these PhDs that had all these intellectual arguments about why God couldn't exist. And I remember sitting there with him and him saying, I would just love for a, a bona fide miracle so, so, that, so that these people would believe. One of the other things that we have that we know today is that what we find from the story of Lazarus and the rich man. That even Jesus says if they won't believe the law and the prophets, they won't even believe a, a man dead raised from the dead. You see, we have Jesus. And Jesus is the one we point to. And He is the one that we believe. And He is the one that we find here, these folks believing in. That Jesus was enough. And as the expansion of the gospel goes forward, and we see it in Lydda, and here we find it again in Joppa, what we find is that many believed in the Lord. You see, the, the fruit of every miracle, of every supernatural act in Scripture, is for people to be in a closer relationship with the Lord. So Peter kneels down and he prays because he doesn't know what else to do. These disciples come to Peter because they don't know where else to turn. And all of those things are pointing us back to Jesus. So where do you need the Lord to strengthen your belief today? Where do you need to turn to Him in prayer and say, Lord, there is this experience in my life from years ago. When I walked into that clinic, when I said that word, when I behaved in that way, and I understand that there is forgiveness in the cross, but Lord, I can't forgive myself of that thing. We need to believe that Jesus is enough. That his cross and his death and his resurrection was sufficient to satisfy 
the guilt and the shame, and that he, in his gospel, is changing everything, that he's bringing about transformation. We need to understand in our, in our desperate attempts to work to prove ourselves, to prove our worth, that it's a gift of grace. It's something we don't earn or deserve. We need to, to submit to his mercy, that we're someone who needed it, and that he has shown it to us in ways that we don't deserve. And even beyond that, we need to trust. Going into a new year, we have all these questions of what's going to happen. Where are we going to turn? What are we going to do? What are you believing in? We need to trust in Jesus. that Jesus will be our rock and our redeemer, that he will be our stronghold and our strong tower, that even when the storms beat against the boat, that he is there with us, the, the promise of the Emmanuel, that regardless of what 2022 holds, Whatever new storm, whatever new trial, whatever new concern or disaster, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is faithful. He is gracious. He is merciful. His mercies never run dry. So we must continue to run to him. kind of closing this text and setting us up for next week. What's so interesting about this is how the Lord is changing Peter's heart. It tells us that he goes to a man named Simon, who's a tanner. This man was Jewish, but because of his profession, he was unclean. Peter didn't have any issue going and staying in this man's house. But as we'll see next week, a Gentile? Oh, Jesus, you're asking me to do too much. Some of us, even this week, need to begin to think about our own hearts, to wonder what's the too much that we have for Jesus. And we need to invite him into those spaces and turning to him and praying and believing that he's enough to change even that that hard and callous place, as we'll see, is an expansion of the mission that he has for his church. Let's pray. Our great God and King, you are merciful and you are mighty. Lord, you have met us in our brokenness. Lord, you have raised us up in our spiritual deadness. Lord, in our, our paralytic state, Lord, and you have given us the gift of yourself. Lord, help us to run to you. May we turn to you first and you not be an afterthought. Lord, would we be about your plans that you're calling us to and not ask you to bless ours after we've already done it? Lord, help us to know the fullness of 
and the height and the depth and the breadth and the length and of the love of Jesus. Let us receive your gospel, and Lord, may it continue to bring about the change that you desire in our lives. And Lord, through that, Lord, would you add to your church and build it up and strengthen it for your glory. Lord, in the good of your people to flourish. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.